this week on the Backtable Podcast. I haven't ever sat down to go through all those things to say this is what it's worth to me because what it's worth to me is I get to have objective evidence on the table. I get to know what I'm doing. It makes my life a lot less stressful. It's like driving a car with a steering wheel, good tires, a seatbelt, headlights, and all the accessories that are going to keep you alive. Why wouldn't you put those on your car? Anybody who has an OBL who makes their own decisions, go find somebody who's really passionate about ultrasound, get them trained like this, and you can implement this tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Boston Scientific's Alluvia drug-eluting peripheral stent is a purpose-built stent platform with a polymer specifically designed to treat SFA disease. In two head-to-head trials, Alluvia demonstrated superior clinical outcomes compared to the other therapies and is setting a new standard of care in SFA stenting. To learn more about the Alluvia and help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com forward slash Alluvia. That's E-L-U-V-I-A from Boston Scientific. Now, back to the episode. My name is Jill Somerset. I am a vascular technologist, and I have the pleasure of Dr. Constantino joining us today. She is an incredible interventional radiologist that I have the pleasure to work with on a daily basis. Dr. Constantino, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel like I should be interviewing you, though. This is like (laughs) the wrong, we're going to co-host, co-guest, okay? (laughs) I'm very excited about this podcast because we're going to talk about advanced arterial duplex ultrasound in the setting of CLTI and really the preoperative mapping that you know I'm very passionate about. And we get to work together to see the value of the preoperative duplex mapping where it's a drawing, not just numbers that you get on a printout. So we can open it up by saying, now that we work together, how do you feel like the drawing or the gillogram or gill maps is helpful to you for your interventional planning? That drawing is critical. I don't know how anybody does any sort of angiograms without it. And this has all been a new experience for me, having you as an ultrasound tech and I'm sure people out there wonder what's going on with us, but I think it's this shared passion for, for critical limb and using ultrasound to make your life so much easier and giving it so much more information. So radiology trained, have done ultrasound forever. Ultrasound is just this bland sort of thing until you really start to put it on steroids and use it as much as you can. And that takes having a tech who really is curious, understands flow, understands the surgeries, understands so many other things. And once you have that, you can start to use it in your practice. So using ultrasound to this degree is very new for me. And I knew the importance when I had a vein practice, which I still do. I knew the importance of, you know, provocative maneuvers and having a tech who really cares about things. But this is a new level. And when you have ultrasound, You actually don't need CT. You don't need MR. And I'm talking in the periphery. I think you get so much more information from ultrasound, in particular, flow direction, flow to the wound with PAT. So I'm not talking about iliacs, but having the arterial system fully mapped is key. 
I don't think people should do things any other way. <laughs> well, you know, I love to hear you say that. And I think if we step back for a minute and look at the historical nature of arterial duplex, I've been doing this for 23 years. I was trained to just do proximal, mid, and distal. That's it. And things have changed and shifted. And the ultrasound technology has improved so much that now we can document far more than just that proximal, mid, and distal measurement. We can look at cat morphology, pedal excess diameters. We're now scanning the foot. We are looking at all of these details that I think help you decide on your decision making. And I think the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is to really highlight the need for advanced arterial duplex and really going the extra mile to map these patients to avoid CT or diagnostic angiograms. Oh, yeah. Diagnostic angiograms should, I feel like a total like loser if I have a diagnostic angiogram. Like, why couldn't I have figured that out before they got on the table? It's going to happen, but it should happen to me less than five times a year. I just can't believe anybody would need a diagnostic angiogram, do an angiogram and then bring the patient back. Really, we should not be doing that, in my opinion, except for in rare case. I think we should go through the ways from start to finish, the way that ultrasound is used. Think about how many ways. So start to finish, the patient comes in the door and they have a wound. Okay, first thing, what's their flow to their foot? Their flow to foot is good. We all can relax and rest easy. Doesn't mean we're not going to look somewhere else, but get that probe on the foot. No flow, class three, class four. Okay, now we got ourselves a problem we got to deal with. Class one, class two. Okay, now we're taking a step back. That affects everything. That affects how fast you got to get the patient on the table, which affects what your front desk staff is doing, which affects what your PA is doing, your nurse is doing. It's a class three or four right there. Put the probe on the foot. That sets off a whole cascade of events. If it's a class one or two, it doesn't set off that cascade. And then we move up to the actually ultrasounding the remainder of the leg to see what the disease looks like. Are there collaterals? Where's the blood flow? What we love is the single vessel perineal. So we're answering all these questions about the remainder of the leg. And then we're correlating it with the patient's history. So they're claudicator. Okay, let's take the case we had on Wednesday. History of iliac stents. Guy comes in and he's got this pain. He can't walk more than half of a block. And his flow in his foot looks great. His femoral tibials look fine. He's got a little disease, but whatever. And his waveforms and his common femoral arteries pretty much are normal. They're biphasic. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, and the guy's had some back surgery. So, you know, I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe have some other reason you can't walk, but sure sounds like claudication. It was classic claudication. So Jill has him do some toe raises and we watch the waveform change to a monophasic flow, which explains everything. You cannot see that on CT. You cannot see that with just your plain old ultrasound. You have to look for these things. And that changes what we're going to do with that patient. Okay, so after we have, do they need an angio? What level acuity are they? Then we go to where's the lesion? Okay, so let's say they're got some levels, whatever, they're not urgent. Are they femoral? Are they tibial? You're always mapping. What's the access site? So when I get a lower extremity Doppler that needs an intervention, all of the access sites are mapped. And so that helps because I'm prepping my tech and my cath lab for what our access site is. Perfect example is Thursday's case or whatever day it was, who had a flush occlusion. And we've been doing a bunch of these from tibial only. Tibial or radial are the options for this guy. So we can set up the room in a way knowing that I'm not going to do 
an anti-grade axis on this guy. I couldn't do contralateral because he had kissing iliac stents. So all of this mapping and say giving detailed information already is changing many things about the entire office. It's already affected every single person in our office from the front desk to the PA to the nurse to the tech. And then what Jill's talking about with what kind of lesion is it? Is it soft? Is there a cap? Where's the cap? Okay, we think the cap is more tibial. Let's start tibial and see if we can break through. And if we can get through, then we access femoral real quick. Maybe we do the rest of the case femoral. Maybe we do the whole thing tibial. But if the chances of getting through are better from tibial, I'm going to go that way first. So along the lines of like, where's the cap? Is this densely calcified or is it soft? And Jill will walk out and Jill's like, oh yeah, you'll get through. Or this one's going to be tough. So I'm already knowing what I'm in for. It takes the guesswork out of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, plan- I have the entire procedure planned. I have everything. I like walk in the cath lab. I do this little thing where I pull the boxes halfway out. And I already know everything I'm doing in that case, unless things go wrong or turn. But the whole thing is planned out. And it- that saves time. It saves contrast. It saves energy. Actually, our problem now is that we can do so much with ultrasound that we're actually having to do angiograms because we're like, okay, we can't. First of all, people on Twitter aren't going to like, <laughs> they're going to need proof. <laughs> and second yeah. of all, what if a biller comes back and says, I need to see your angiogram that you said you did. And I maybe did an angiogram to the knee because I know there's no flow and I'm putting together all this information. So I'm having to get more rigid with myself about actually doing a diagnostic angiogram before if I say I'm doing one because I don't need it, really. Yeah. Well, remember you came up with this ultrasonography angiogram or something like that. What was that that you said in this week? Because we're talking about this, right? We now have the document ultrasound. Yeah. Oh, I called it ultrasonographic angiogram was performed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We were making a joke. I don't know if that will fly. We'll have to work with uh, SIRPAC or something on that one. But we did an entire, was that a CTO that we did with just ultrasound? She had tandem lesions in the SFA. So we just use ultrasound. Yeah. Yeah. So we just did one. This gal had really bad contrast reaction. And so she just had tandem SFA lesions, monophasic flow, poor flow to the foot and like a wound or something. I, most of them have yes, wounds or did. West pain. Mm-hmm. She had a wound. Yes. And we did the entire case with IVIS and ultrasound. And I don't know, it took 20 minutes or something. I've not even dictated it yet because I don't even know what to dictate. Yeah. She had single vessel runoff in through the perineal. And we just use ultrasound waveforms to have our endpoint. After you did, you know, atherectomy and balloon of these tandem lesions in the SFA, it was pretty great, actually. Yeah. Yeah, which arguably is way more informative than angio. Yes, there's a vessel, but is it flowing and how is it flowing? It's almost like if you are in an airplane and you take a picture of a river versus if you're actually trying to kayak in the river. Yeah, for sure. I want to go back to the point of what you talked about when the ultrasound tech walks into the room and they put the probe on the foot. So first of all, we have changed our protocol. We no longer start with the standard ABI, TBIs in a CLTI case. We start with duplex ultrasound of the foot. And I think that right away, knowing what flow is to the wound is really important using PAT. So right away, we've changed our algorithm of testing to do pedal duplex the arterial duplex, and then we can end with an ABI or TBI if need be. In CLTI patients, most of them are diabetic, so ABI is going to be erroneous anyway, or they don't have toes and we don't do TBIs. So I think understanding that change in our practice is really important for people listening because you can't expect a tech to do more 
in their same time constraint. So I propose in these CLTI patients that we have to give something up. And in a diabetic renal failure patients, Dr. Constantino, do you care about ABIs? I care zero about ABIs. I'm sorry to all those people who do, because I have dictated numerous ABIs that say tabulate vessels are calcified, ABI may be erroneous, or the history of the patient. And you're like, there's no way these ABIs are 0.9. And that also speaks to maybe operator error too. ABIs, just like ultrasound, can be done really well or partially done, like everything in medicine. But I think, why are we put so much weight onto ABIs? I think ABIs give you a third piece of information, but it's like the final piece of information. And we need to make them less important. And also screening, like screening with ABIs, uh, no way, no way. Yeah, I think what I'm getting at is to pick and choose how we use our diagnostic testing. In a diabetic CLTI patients, I do not believe that ABI adds a lot of weight to the decision making. I think we get more out of the pedal duplex and the full arterial duplex. And so that's why we have switched our protocol around. Yeah. And that's critical that we also say these are all diabetic wounds, rest pain, heavy calcium. This is not a primary care population of all comers. We have a very diseased group. So yes. maybe I, I'm biased. I admit that I'm a little bit biased. Because <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so let's talk about the reporting packages that are available today. I always get on my soapbox because I get very frustrated that they just document a bunch of numbers. And like you say, garbage in, garbage out. And I feel like there's a call to action to incorporate or make better drawings. I'm doing hand-done drawings on the iPad because we need to have some kind of visual aid. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, God, just talk about soapbox. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. And this is, in my opinion, and I hope I don't get in trouble or people don't get mad at me or whatever, but the administration of medicine and how can we do things faster, easier, quicker? And so that we're all sitting there clicking buttons to sign off reports that are absolutely meaningless. And it just drones on and on. And the problem is, like in my job, I'm in many surgeons and cardiologists, like people who are on the clinical side of this know. Radiologists don't necessarily know what it's like to be on the clinical receiving end of a report that helps you not at all. So the interesting part about my job is that the radiology part of me that just goes click, click, signing off reports, whatever, it's meaningless. It's not meaningless. But then I actually have to use those reports to decide what to do. That disconnect is super huge. I see other reports that come out of any sort of ultrasound lab and they don't really help me at all. I'm basically looking for, is the femoral artery open or closed? And I don't trust a whole lot else other than if I don't know who did the study. I also, it doesn't answer a lot of my questions. What is the flow to the foot? What's the direction? What's the cat morphology? What's the access site? I'm sorry, but you just can't have a tech sit there and enter in 120 you know, centimeters per second type numbers and then expect that to generate any report that I can actually plan a case around. So then what do you do? You get the ultrasound, you get the diagnostic angiogram, and then you intervene. So the drawings are key. And this is because if you aim to do good work, you can make a system, if you have freedom to do it, that actually cuts the junk out and gives you answers and streamlines everything. Jill, maybe you want to explain how you do that. By the way, that drawing is also like this only thing the patient understands. 
it's a great teaching tool for sure. Yeah. And I think now with ultrasound being so good, we now can see the communicating arteries off the perineal. So now we understand pedal flow hemodynamics. And that is huge when we have to do indirect revascularization. And when you can visually see the target artery pathway to the wound, I think it changes your approach to the case. You might try direct revascularization to the wound bed, but now we have a second option of understanding the hemodynamic pathway around the pedal arch. Yeah, I think you should explain the indirect perfusion, like the indirect stuff you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so you know what? I'm a lover of the profunda and the perineal, <laughs> and we've, we're on this run of single vessel runoff via the perineal. And when I see that, you can bet I am going to go study the communicating arteries off the perineal artery because that's going to tell us what flow is like in the foot. So if the posterior communicating artery is patent, filling from single vessel runoff to the posterior communicating artery and now filling the lateral plantar artery, now we're going to get retrograde flow in the arcuate artery with antegrade flow out to the dorsal metatarsal artery in the setting of a great toe wound. And that's pretty huge because maybe the whole entire anterior tibial artery and dorsalis pedis artery is occluded and I may just say to you, hey, let's atherectomy and balloon or just balloon the perineal artery and get indirect flow around the pedal arch, assuming the arch is intact. And we can see that with ultrasound, which is so great. We've actually just ballooned a communicating artery with you standing there and instead of reopening two tibials or attempting to, because I don't know, I think they're reopening these tibials, the long segment tibials is very challenging. And I also constantly have a problem with that dorsalis pedis. It's just a nightmare. And that little segment of the dorsalis pedis, I don't know if it's a repetitive trauma thing or whatever, but instead of doing all of that, if I can document objectively or Jill can that flow to a wound or to the toe comes from those communicating arteries and we balloon those and improve flow, it's worked. That's what we're doing. Yeah. And I think the work we're doing in your cath lab is amazing because when we can see the changes of PAT on the table, it's pretty remarkable. And I'm always trying to grab you to to come see one hour post-op to show you that the flow is still the same. And I think that is really gratifying. And it's a number that we can teach and show the patient. We always have this thing in our in the cath lab on these days, <laughs> especially with these tough cases, which I don't know what's been going on lately, but it is just one tough case after the next. And I go into my office. I don't close the door. Like, you know, when you're listening for your kids playing and it goes silent or mm-hmm. you hear them play, you kind of have this like part of your brain paying attention to what's going on <laughs> the outside. As the ultrasound wheels around and I'm always waiting for like the sound, Jill will turn up the sound so it will give like this great Doppler (laughs) and I never relax until that one hour. So we'll do on the table and then patient goes into recovery and Jill is looking at that foot maybe one, two, three more times. And then also doing follow-up at two weeks. Everybody gets a two-week follow-up and we have all of these great numbers where we are really looking to make sure that PAT is sustainable. And it is. We don't really see it go from great on the table to not great at two weeks. Yeah. So I think we should also share what we know about revascularization. So when it's direct revascularization to the wound bed, that change on the table happens immediate. But when it's indirect revascularization, we know that an hour later, 
the PET actually improves. And I think it just takes time. We saw that just in our patient earlier this week. Remember the great toe didn't look so great? Oh, yeah. And uh, Oh, yeah. The toe looked terrible. Little... I was like, this yes. is awful. The toe looked white and purple. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? And Jill's like, don't worry. It's fine. It actually looks really <laughs> good. This looks great. That's another reason I love having Jill around. She's like um, my critical limb therapy doll. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. And it always, she's always right. And she'll turn to me and just like give me a little quietly if it's not going to turn out well. But this is so huge to have this ability to objectively evaluate something when it clinically you can't tell. I, this is another thing about PAT is that you cannot look at the feet and tell what the flow is. You think you can, you can't. These perfectly like just a little bit red, don't look terrible feet with no flow. And then you get these like purple erythematous things that you just think are going to fall off and they actually have decent flow. Maybe they're class two. So I want to bring up uh, a point about, I think what we have is pretty magical. You are an incredible interventional radiologist and you absolutely back me and bring me into your lab and we do some great work together. But how do other people implement the same thing into their practice? Because there's a problem with reimbursement. We don't get paid for me to be in the cath lab, but you do find value in it. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I absolutely do. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I like owning my own OBL and being my own boss, because I can do what I want medically. That's interesting. That makes sense. That eases my mind. That helps me. And I don't have to worry about justifying it to a bunch of suits in an administrative office. Because you cannot justify it right now. Well, actually, that's not necessarily true. Let me take that back. Here's how you justify it. Equipment, expense, time. Right now, if anybody actually was using great ultrasound, you don't need contrast shortage. Guess what? Like, you could do an angio without any contrast. (laughs) You don't have to cancel the case. I haven't ever sat down to go through all those things to say this is what it's worth to me. Because what it's worth to me is I get to have objective evidence on the table. I get to know what I'm doing. It makes my life a lot less stressful. It's like driving a car with a steering wheel, good tires, a seatbelt, headlights, and all the accessories that are going to keep you alive. Why wouldn't you put those on your car? Anybody who has an OBL who makes their own decisions, go find somebody who's really passionate about ultrasound, get them trained like this, and you can implement this tomorrow. And believe me, it's so nice. I don't know other OBLs if they have access to CT or where they get. If you're in the hospital, you just get the CAT scan in your hospital. But I know like for fibroids, when I send people out for MRIs, I've got to keep track of that MRI, where they had it, what the results are. I got to do the follow-up. That extra sort of step whenever you send anybody out for anything is a lot. And now I just know that all the information is going to be contained. I'm not going to miss anything. I don't have to go chase down documents that don't really help me and try to get images. Oh, I think we should also share, though, I think we also plan for these cases. So sometimes I'm not just in the case standing, watching you. Sometimes I'm actually wearing lead, scanning a patient at the same time. Oh, most of the time. Oh, yeah. Jill does like 13 ultrasounds on a day that will do three critical limbs or two critical limbs or even just one critical limb. You have a full ultrasound schedule on top of this. Yes, but that's the nice thing about the OBL, right, is I can leave lead on. They can just knock on the door. I'll pop in, look at the foot or 
in some of these really challenging cases, maybe we'll block out a little time because we're going to use extravascular ultrasound to, to cross a CTO. So I think we we can plan these cases. And I know going into it, if there is calcific shadow in the distal occluded SFA, that ultrasound's not going to be helpful. Probably not a good use of resource to have me in there. I can be scanning a patient. But I think we should highlight that there's a way that we utilize ultrasound to also be beneficial financially to do studies. Yeah. Ultrasound is definitely beneficial financially having you around. The value of ultrasound and your value is so huge to me that even if it was not beneficial financially, I would not care at all. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I mean, because it's fun and interesting and it's the fact that I get to do fun, interesting, creative, innovative things as a washed up, almost 50 year old, 20 years into this. And I love it every day. And we have these highs and occasional lows together. That's like everything to me. It is. It is absolutely huge because it brings back the spark and the enjoyment of these really tough cases. And I think our passion is pretty well matched. We're the ones in the cath lab giving the fist bump. And that brings a lot of gratitude and, and happiness, I think, to the day. The whole team is in on this. And actually, I've lost complete and utter control in this cath lab. And everybody just wants to know, what did Jill say to do? And I'm like, well, she said. So one amazing thing about, and I'm saying Jill, but I would say anybody who's at this level, I know no other ultrasound tech that's close to this, but that's only because I work with Jill. And I do think it requires training and dedication. I don't think you can go just pick your favorite nicest person who you have to have a passion for this work. And I think if you found a tech who had a passion for this work, it breathes so much life into their careers as well. This is not just fly through ultrasounds like you see clinically how much you're helping. And I do think we go into medicine because we actually want to do useful work. So if I were running an ultrasound crowd, I would start doing the things that we're doing, which is how is it clinically pertinent? How is it changing management? How is it changing decision making in an OR or a cath lab? Breathe life back into your ultrasound tech's jobs by involving them head to toe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was funny. Huh? And um, yeah. <laughs> in the management of the patient, and that's what we have going on here. And Jill brings so much value to me because she has also worked with a ton of vascular surgeons. Like she started all this with vascular surgeons. And so I always am asking her, like, is there a surgical option? Like, what would the surgeons do here? And she's really built this community that I love working with the surgeons in town. And she's like a vector between us. And we have a great deal of respect for each other. And I certainly would send out a back call to them at any time if I thought there was like a better option for them. And her knowledge about the endovascular and surgical approaches is so vast that she helps me understand a lot of that. And often if we had a long segment CTO, she's already mapping their veins for bypass. And on the Jill map, it'll say how much vein is available for bypass. We had a case, uh, another case the other day where the patient had, she had GSV ablation and then she had like a really short right GSV, a small GSV. It was like 3-1 or something. And then she had about 63 cm of vein, both arms and leg. Yeah, because it would have to be a common femoral to distal PT bypass, and she just didn't have enough GSV. So I mapped her cephalic veins, and yeah, she had enough. But I think that's the nice thing is we can cue the patient up for a surgical option if need be. 
Yeah. And it helps when I talk to the surgeon and yes. send them the little map. It certainly takes a village and a multidisciplinary team. And I think we're fortunate enough. We've started doing our multidisciplinary limb salvage meetings locally. And that's been really nice to engage our podiatry colleagues, interventional cardiologists, vascular surgery, us presenting cases. I think this is how we make a difference in our community. Just out of, you know, pure interest, Jill and I, we do actually both have lives outside of work and we have kids and we run our houses and all this other stuff that we do. I'm on boards and Jill's on boards. Society of Vascular Ultrasound, right? You're on like, Mm -hmm. you're like the board member there. But we love this so much that we can't help it but just do more of it. And so we put together a critical limb meeting in town and it's so fun. But we're realizing that without, again, those angiograms, people don't know what to say. (laughs) So we're like, okay, we already finished the case, but let's get the angiogram so that we can talk about it at a case conference and just in case United Healthcare wants images or something. I feel like the PAT thing is challenging too. Yeah, it still is catching on and there's still a lot of work to be done to educate, which leads me into my next thought before we wrap it up is that my dream or career goal is I would love to create and build an advanced credential for CLTI. And I think the value of that, just like the neuro NVS or RPHS credential, I think there is a place for an advanced credential for vascular technologists to have more knowledge, to have a place in the cath lab with the potential of having us be reimbursed for our time in the cath lab. But with that said, there's a lot of work to be done with multi-societies and um, getting some traction behind that. So with that said, Dr. Constantino, do you feel like that would be a venture between SIR, SVS, SVU? Like, how can we go about that to move the needle and go in the direction of getting more vascular ultrasound technologists to this advanced level? Oh, that's a tough one. Probably would have to come from Society of Vascular Ultrasound or the work that like you got, you're doing the vascular surgeons in terms of just publishing the data first, getting reimbursement. I think PAT reimburses for a, a limited ultrasound, right? Yeah, it's just the 93926 code. But it's wrapped into the full arterial duplex study. But when we see patients follow up, we can bill for it. But I think that's a whole nother conversation of how we expand the training platform for PAT and pedal duplex. I'm the chair of the annual meeting for SVU, and we're doing our best to train and do hands-on scanning. And I actually train more people around the world, more physicians than I do vascular techs in the U.S. So I hope it's going to take time, but I think we'll get there. I think we need to start with that worksheet. I would say have a a worksheet that requires that you at least think about things. So I think about fetal ultrasound, right? Fetal ultrasound 20 years ago, so different than it is now. And that was really pushed by maternal fetal medicine and people who are really dedicated into like obstetric ultrasound. When nuchal translucency came in, it was the fetal ultrasound societies that were saying, okay, If you're going to bill for this fetal ultrasound, you're going to have to include this now. And we, I mean, when I was at OHSU, we would have our techs start doing things because our staff knew, our attendees knew this was coming down the pipeline. And so we would start ultrasounding these things. The techs would start and our worksheets would change. And that evolves over 10, 12 years and it adds and adds. So going back to the dumb programs where you plug in numbers, which I know are super efficient and I shouldn't complain so much about them because God knows I don't want to have to type those numbers in. But 
I think if we start on those worksheets, start talking about cat morphology, there are ways to describe it. And we do that in ultrasound for other places like renal cyst and all these things. Yeah, even just adding the foot to these software programs would be huge. Oh, yeah. If you just said, yes, there's flow in a toe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, I just want to thank you for being such an innovator and leader in your field. And you are just such an amazing woman and uh, joy to work with every single day. And um, really for believing and using ultrasound to its fullest potential every day is a gift when I get to work with you. So thank you. You keep saying that, but I always joke, I just push the wire. (laughs) You just tell me where to go. And sometimes I just get lucky. You basically like, here's a map and see what you could do. And I'm like, all right, well, that worked. I'm always a little surprised. And I don't know, I am truly nothing without you and the people who we have around us to make this stuff happen. But man, I do feel lucky that as exhausting and tiring as running a practice and a business can be, that I love the cases we do. And I love the work we do. It's definitely really, really gratifying teamwork. Where do you want to see this go? I mean, you're the visionary. I'm not. Where do you want to see this go? Well, I would like to see it expand, as I said, for the advanced credential for CLTI. I would like to see ultrasound used more in an advanced level for preoperative workup in the cath lab and also the postoperative follow-up. And the below-the-knee work and the pedal work is huge, so we can avoid CT and really play an integral role with any interventionalist and be part of the team. Oftentimes, I feel like vascular techs, we just document proximal, mid, and distal. We push out a report, and that's it. And I think we want to raise up and be more a part of the team. How would you say people should get their text trained? Do you have to find somebody who's interested and then have them talk to Jill? You're on webinars all the time training just for the audience. Jill's always like, I have, a, I have to go do some training. I'm like, who are you talking to? She's always off doing these three in the morning, nine in the morning, in between cases, teaching people online, which I told her is not sustainable, but she keeps doing it. So how can, I mean, what does an interested ultrasound tech do if they're listening to this? Well, I think from the institution or vascular lab perspective, uh, bringing in a consultant. So I do training that is customized for that vascular lab or the practice, which is really nice. We can do pelvic venous disorder. We can do peripheral vascular, anything that is customizable to train the group. But I will say that I'm trying to create a learning platform. I work pretty closely with Hendelet, which is Dr. Miguel Montero Baker's platform in Latin America. And that is a really nice place to learn more. But I do think that we have to develop a place to get this advanced arterial duplex education because we have to teach more also what happens in the cath lab. So when you're pushing wires and catheters, I'm trying to think a step ahead of you. And I think that's a gap of knowledge that a lot of vascular techs just don't have. That reminds me, I used to teach how to read a chest x-ray to pick nurses. And they loved it. And we should have ultrasound techs rotating through the cath lab. Why not? Or ultrasound students just rotating through the cath lab to see what an angiogram even looks like or what pedal access even looks like. Oh, 100%. And I often tell a lot of physicians, have the tech scan the patient, invite them to the cath lab on the patient that they scanned, watch the intervention, and allow them to process and learn from the procedure. And then it's very applicable and they feel like they're part of the team. And then when they go to scan the next patient, now they'll think, oh gosh, I should have done pedal diameters or documented that cat morphology or understand if this is softer, you know, calcified. You just have to invest in people. That's the bottom line. 
it's the long game. We're also exhausted right now. It's a lot to ask to have people give more, but ultimately it brings the joy back. I feel like I work that way, the vascular surgeons and even the gynecologists around here. If there's something I want to see surgically, like go stand in that OR. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and to have this delightful conversation. Of course, we're quite passionate about it together and it's been really fun. So thank you. (laughs) It's always so fun to see you. I miss you already. It's only Saturday and I won't get to see you until Monday. Which we have a very busy week ahead of us. I know, I I saw. You'll tell (laughs) me what to do like you always do. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.